Nothing. Is it square or is it kind of roundy? I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's for the jury to decide. I said it couldn't come in, and it isn't coming in. No matter what you think. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast. I'm James Lilix, and we have Peter Robinson and Rob along with us today to talk to Ryan Peterson about shipping and what happened and how to fix it. So let us have ourselves a podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 570. One of those rare shows can be expressed in four Roman numerals. Join us at ricochet.com. Be part of the most stimulating conversations in the community on the web. And speaking of which, before we get to the show, I'm going to say something that may sound like a commercial, but it's not. I'll tell you why at the end. NDQ stands for No Dumb Questions, brand new Ricochet Podcast. It's not that we ban the dumb questions. It's just the fact that, really, there aren't any dumb questions. You know, you, you ask the experts to get which get. We have some of the savviest political observers out there. Next week on No Dumb Questions. Our new feature for Ricochet members, Chris Steyerwald. You probably know him from the stint running Fox News political editor and his role in explaining the decision to call Arizona for Joe Biden on election night in 2020. In addition, added bonus, this No Dumb Questions will be hosted by our friend David M. Drucker, senior correspondent for the Washington Examiner and the host of Ricochet's own In Trump's Shadow, the Battle for 2024 podcast. Knows a thing or two about politics himself, you might say. So join us on Zoom Tuesday, November 16th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, bring your toughest questions for Chris and Dave. Sign up today at ricochet.com slash join. Again, that's ricochet.com slash J-O-I-N. No dumb questions. And why wasn't that a commercial? Because it was a promotion. Anyway, on with the show. Hi, I'm James Lilix in cold, clammy, dank Minneapolis. Peter Robinson in sunny California. Rob Long, I believe, is uh, a flaneur about the boulevards in Paris with the beret and the sweatshirt and the baguette. And I'm, in, I'm in Paris and I'm struggling with my, as always, whenever I travel with my stupid equipment. Like, for some reason, the mic doesn't work. I don't understand. I Go into excruciating it. detail because it's that kind of behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff that it's, people love. The moment he lands in stuff. France, it happens every time. You become suspicious of American technology. Right. Well, yeah, if only it was American technology. I, I, actually, it is. It is. It's, I'm suspicious and furious that Apple Computer, which seems to invent new USB uh, <laughs> connections yes. every time it does anything, and then you buy them, and then for some reason they don't work. Yes, when do you learn that the Thunderbolt, which looks like the sea, is not? Uh, Rob, I have to ask, do you know why the traditional cliched image of the Frenchman in the striped shirt and the, and the beret and the, uh, you know, the cigarette and sometimes the suspenders, do you know where that comes from? Uh, no, I, I thought it was a Breton, right? Isn't it a Breton uh, fisherman? Well, we'll get to that at the end of the show because I don't want to take a valuable palaver time here. But, Peter, Rob, I think the most consequential thing going on this week, and I may be wrong, is the uh, Kenosha trial. And it's sort of like the conservative world broke down along two sides. One, there's the, well, he definitely shouldn't have been there, but he was right to defend himself. And the other side is, well, he's right to defend himself, but he shouldn't have been there. And I'd like to come up with a third alternative, which um, flatters me and slays both of those straw men by saying that, you know, he probably is is um, not guilty of murder, gets off on self-defense. 
It's a question. It was ill-advised and unwise for a young man to put himself in those situations. But the real, real responsibility rests with the rioters and the civil authorities that failed to keep the city safe. I'll, I'll sign up to that one. I'll sign up to the lilacs view. I mean, well, I'm a layman. I'm, I'm watching this trial in snippets here and there on Twitter and and uh, on Fox News. And, um, I mean, I think I'm the father of five kids. If I had a 17-year-old running down the street in a riot with a rifle, I'd think I had done something wrong. I, my child should not have left home that night. And there Kyle Rittenhouse was in the street in the middle of a riot carrying a rifle. So something is very odd there. But if you look at the tape, he's being chased. They're shouting. Someone says cranium him. Apparently cranium is a slang term for shoot someone in the head. He's knocked down. Um, people approach him and try to stomp on him. And someone pulls a gun and points it in his direction. If, 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 if his firing under those circumstances isn't self-defense, I don't know what is self-defense. So that's the way I see it. It looks, it looks pretty obviously that way to me. I have to say, I'm more and more impressed. Am I repeating myself? I probably am. I'm more and more impressed by the simple common sense and the poise of Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Democrat. I know she's a Democrat. I know she and I disagree on all kinds of issues. But she said the other day, the prosecution, the, the, at a minimum, they should never have charged him with murder. But she said they just they, they, this case should never have been brought. And I thought, it's as simple as that. Like, the case shouldn't have been brought. From what I can see, using my own judgment, looking at snippets, I'm not in the courtroom, of course. But that's the way it looks to me. Have you been following it, Rob, at all? Been <laughs> I've, I've, I've been completely mesmerized by the sound of your dog, i got to say. Uh, with, with your sorry, um, I have not been following it. I have not been following it because there is nothing in it that I find interesting at all. I just don't think it's interesting. Look, I, the kid—I don't know—it shouldn't have been there, but like boys do that. There's like venture happening, you know, not that far away, and they want to get involved in it. And something bad was going to happen, whether it was, you know, the, whether I don't know how you look at it. Like something bad was going to happen, and something bad did happen, and um. I'm glad he's on trial. Not that interesting. Uh, no, it's really not that interesting. I'm glad he's on trial. I think that's we, we should we should get, we should get these things settled. Um, I think if he wasn't on trial, it'd be a lot worse. Um, it doesn't seem to me, just from reading the newspaper, that um, that whatever he did, he it was not plausibly in self-defense. It just seems like that's self-defense. Like the guy grabs your gun, and you get that's what happens. They, um, but I just uh, for me, I just. Uh, this just feels like this look feel like cable news. This obsession with one specific case, this desire to have it wall to wall, this urgency on Twitter for everybody to get all sort of like weirdly um, obsessed with it. Uh, the the idea that this is somehow the central <laughs> the central story of the week and not six percent inflation or the fact that we just spent two trillion dollars and we spent two trillion more. This is exactly what's wrong with us: is that we just are obsessed with like we're just chasing after this nonsense. Yes, and, as I, if it matters, but it does not matter. It is we simply can, we, we no, can. we can't. It was just it's just driving us all crazy. No, we can walk and chew gum and shoot Antifa. But we don't. No, we can't. We clearly can't. We clearly cannot do that. Well, speak for yourself. I mean, I find all of these things to be interesting and pertinent in their own way. 
they don't all have to have, occupy the same amount of space in my brain. I can't think about inflation all this the time. But this is the I first thing you started with. This is the first thing you started with. I did because I think it's consequential. You, if we want to sit here and I talk don't. about inflation. Here's, 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 here's well, one of the we disagree. Well, I don't think it's consequential at all. I, don't, I really think this is a sideshow, but it's, a, it's, it's tailor-made for our neurotic cable news obsessed culture. okay i don't like I, he, i'll be the guy that you used to be and say stop thinking about the media stop talking about cable put it out of your mind i don't want no, to I, I'm, not, I'm not watching viewers. cable news i'm not watching cable news do it and i'm not even paying attention a lot of attention to people on twitter except to see the ridiculous things that they say inflation we can all agree is bad the spending that we did is all bad right. This we can tease various things out about what this moment is in our time. Specifically, a react going back to last year when city after city after city went up and was viewed as justified for reasons, and they let it happen, or they were unable to stop right. it from happening. And those of us who right. lived through, you know, fire glimmering on the horizon, twenty blocks to the north, because they're torching my town, find it inter- interesting to go back and revisit a time when civil authority vanished. So that's one thing. The other thing is, yes, it is instructive about what some people say and how they view the other side. For example, and I know, Rob, this doesn't match. Well, now, now you're going to tell me what the media says, right? No, not, I'm not talking about the media. Wait, where I'm, are you getting your news, James, if you're not getting from cable news about this? Are you watching it on TV? No, I'm watching ep- excerpts that come my way, on, uh, taken, which are taken There's a lot cable. posted on Twitter, I've noticed. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can get another a lot great, Another great uh, c- contributor to our national uh, psychology. Okay. Uh, the point that somebody made, which I find, and maybe both of you have seen this elsewhere, saying, would we be, would the, would the conservatives be feeling in the same way about this case if Kyle Rittenhouse was a black man and he shot some white man? And I say, yeah, in the yes. circumstances being equal. It's like when they post a picture of a nuclear family and they all have AR-15s and the kids have good you know, trigger discipline and obviously this is a family that shoots together and stays together. How do you feel about this, white America? Right. I think it's great. There's a piece of this. Well, what, that do you, I what do you think if we made the you know men who got women pregnant required them to pay for the children instead of having them aborted? How do you feel about that? It's like, do you not understand how, where our ideas come from and how they actually aren't based in some reductive skin color idea that that they actually apply to everybody? Anyway, Peter, go on. Well, no, there's a piece of this that I find reassuring, and it runs as follows: if well, it runs as follows. CNN, MSNBC, they've all been saying he was a vigilante. Clearly he wasn't. He was a kid carrying a rifle, attracted to the scene of the action, who probably, as I said earlier, shouldn't have been there. But there was, in effect, a media, I won't say a lynch mob, because that, but, but they, they wanted to get this kid. And what's reassuring to me is that you put it into a courtroom, there's a common sense, experienced judge, middle American guy. Of course, they're mocking him for that because he's, he sounds like a Midwesterner. And you've got a prosecutor who actually hasn't done his homework. And you slow it all down and you say there are rules by which we try people in this country. And you, the prosecutor, have to obey them. And I, the judge, intend to enforce them. And you have to present evidence. You have to do it in slow motion. You have to permit the defense to present its case. And you slow it all down. And you apply the rules of evidence and reason and procedure. And it looks as though we may get to something like a just result. So the legal system is still still functions as a way of 
what reducing the fever, of slowing things down, of making sure that reason is still a central component. Reason and evidence remain central components in the way we proceed in this country. That that if there's if there's anything yeah, okay. it's just one yeah. kid. That's that strikes me as significant that there's a piece of the country that still works the way it's supposed to work. Well the irony here is that if he gets acquitted, I think he is going to get acquitted. I think he deserves to, just from what I read. Um, it's going to be because of the prosecution's evidence. The, uh, the yes. eyewitness, That's the one right. person he, he shot who didn't kill, who's alive to tell the story and is telling the story. Out of his own lips comes the story that, well, yeah, I grabbed it and I told him I was going to kill him and, and, I, and, and, I, and I, I pointed a gun at him and that's when he shot. Right. Um, the irony, of course, here, it is useful, I suppose, just to remember in this case that, that there was not a, a, an armed person surrounded by unarmed people. Um, he pulled the trigger on an armed person. He had right. there were armed. There's, there were guys carrying guns everywhere. Even but that I, is I, reassuring. The the, the, the yeah. guy who pulled the gun on him, so I mean, clearly he shouldn't have been there. But you put him in court, you calm things down, and the kid tells the truth. He yeah. tells the truth. So that I don't know. I just uh, we'll see how it all comes out. I I I sort of love the judge because he's a common sense. He gets irascible when the prosecution tries to pull a fast one on him. Um, even to, I don't know, maybe I'm making too much of this, but that judge seems to me to stand for the middle of the country and the middle of the country is still sane. Yeah. I mean, the thing I like about the judge so far, and again, it's like, this is what I read, but I'm from re- reading about him is that he, he, that this is what he does. He does murder trials. Yes. And he's just seen a million of them. And so yeah. this is just a murder trial for him. He's and a seasoned think, old pro. Yeah, and it seems like the just in his in his reprimand of the prosecutor, it seems like the only other judges that I know, I only knew one judge who did criminal cases in L.A. years ago, and who said that the only time he lost his temper was when the prosecution was not prepared. Right. Like you, you give leeway to the defense just in general. I think as a judge, that just seemed to be what they do. But when the prosecution isn't prepared, as this prosecutor simply was not, you just lose it. You just lose it because you're just it's just a waste of your time, and you you know. You got other stuff to do, um, so it does seem to me that that's that's interesting. But the rest of it, again, I think is just a sideshow that we you know put on ourselves as often as we can um, to avoid you know facing <laughs> facing reality. How many trials have we had that have been broadcast wall to wall that concern the uh, 2020 riots, urban dis- urban disturbances? None that I can think of. Yeah, this is the first that brings it to mind. I just like to see everybody reminded of the fact. That when you encourage, yay, applaud for social justice, social disorder, you get social disorder. And when you applaud street street violence, street political violence, you get street political violence. And New York is seeing right now a new mayor that has to stare down some activists who say, if you go back to the way the old policing is, you're going to see riots in the street again. <laughs> well, listen, that's another subject. I was remiss, perhaps, in bringing it up in the first place when there are other measures. So before we get to our guest, I just have to ask you guys then, for the you know, for the record here, yay or nay, um, inflation? Yeah, inflation. So <laughs> yeah. I'm opposed well, to it, by the way. I'm opposed to it. I'm against it. <laughs> All right. So, so I, have, I have smart friends out here, and I've actually reached a conclusion about this, but this is simply because I borrowed somebody else's conclusion. I have plenty of smart friends out here who say, no, 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 the Fed is actually right this inflation is transitory. All we're seeing is temporary choke points in the economy as the economy reopens. We're going to get to a guest who is going to talk about the choke points that are, are, are ports here in California. Then I saw my Hoover colleague, Kevin Hassett, who was Trump's uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump White House. 
don't hold that against him. Kevin is, has a brilliant career as an economist, apart from his brief time in the White House. In any event, Kevin said, and I thought to myself, he's right. Kevin said this is really pretty simple. By spending trillions of dollars, the Biden administration is stoking demand. And by uh, imposing new regulations, by beating up on carbon energy producers, He's suppressing supply. So you stoke demand and suppress supply, and what you get is more dollars chasing fewer goods and services, and you will get inflation. And it's not transitory. It's systemic. So I thought, you know, that makes sense. Kevin also said, this is the part I don't know. Kevin said people are saying this reminds them a lot of the 70s. I, I Kevin Hassett, actually believe this could get worse than the 70s. Because it's systemic. Man, we yeah. should stop talking to Kevin Hassett. He's depressing. <laughs> exactly. That's your problem right there. Exactly. Exactly. I talked to the wrong people. I, you know, I think two things. One is that I feel like I, I, I can't get too exercised over the price of gas because I do think that is cyclical and goes up and down. And <laughs> we've, seen, we've seen expensive gas before. Um, <laughs> we have. We have. We, you know, we've had you oil drive shots. 50, 60 miles a day. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm just saying that we have had $4 gas in the country in the past 10 years, and then it's eased, and then it's constricted, and it's eased. That I, I'm, not, I'm just saying that in terms of systemic, dangerous inflation that makes uh, you know, uh, uh, certain investors want to jump out windows, this ain't it. That, doesn't, that is not to say that there's not inflation. My second point is there is, I think, inflation. And worse, I believe, that we're going to be starting to hear more about inflation that we weren't listening to or paying attention to for the past 20 years. We've been playing around with the CPI for, a, for a, forever and adjusting it to get to the number we want with a lot of tricks, especially with, with the price of gas, too, by the way. And we may now be suddenly, uh, when the chickens come home to roost, we may now be suddenly facing what happens when it's – uh, for real, and here's one of the indications that you know it's for real, or that I think it's for real, um, is that uh, the smart, uh, you know, the two smart people, the smarty pants people in like magazines like The Economist, I don't think it's The Economist, but I've seen it in various places, are now saying, well, you know, actually, inflation is good. Oh, I know. I oh, hear right, that. I, right. And when you that. get to that point, you know you're, you know, I that. you know, one, it's bad, and you know, two, they think it's going to be here for a while. I've heard that right. from old liberal friends as, from, as well, you know. Uh, the thing of it is, though, if you talk to any economist, they're going to say, no, it's bad. It's tax on the poor. It's bad. But what, yeah. what, what do you do about the people who, for example, wanted, you know, they got a lot of money sitting around. They don't know where to put it. They want to invest. They want to keep ahead of this. They want to keep ahead of inflation. But at the same time, they want their money to do good. You want your money to do good. Doing good is being redefined these days just under our feet and before our eyes. The Economist magazine recently reported that American philanthropy is going woke, and it's predominantly funding liberal causes. Do you want to help counterbalance this liberal influence? If so, consider listening to Giving Ventures. Giving Ventures. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a new podcast. Yeah, I know you think, oh, I have so many podcasts. This one's different. It's designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts, initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. Recently, they were joined by J.P. DeGance of Communio. 
to discover what he's doing to strengthen marriages across the country. Scott Hodge, president of the Tax Foundation, joined to talk about the economic implications of the reconciliation bill. And Nikki Nelly, president of Parents Defending Education, told them what she's doing to help parents engage with their local school boards. Shows a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund that helps conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with the policy groups, student organizations, academic centers, and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government, to grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. If you care about the principles of liberty and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures, that's the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or catch up on the latest episode by visiting www.donorstrust.org slash podcast. Donorstrust.org slash podcast. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this and the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast Ryan Peterson. He's the CEO of Flexport, the modern freight forwarder that seeks to rescue the antiquated industry and make it more consumer-focused, tech-savvy. He offered a thread on Twitter the other day after touring the Port of Long Beach where he laid out the particulars of our cataclysmical backlog and gave us his proposed solutions. You can read the thread. It's all linked at, at uh, well, at ricochet.com where you happen to be now. Hey, before we get to how the ports got jammed, uh, where they're jammed, where they're not jammed, what we can do about it, all that. Tell us what you saw when you took that boat tour of the Long Beach Port Complex. It's, uh, hey, everybody, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, well, the, the port's really not functioning at a high level. You see a very small percentage of the cranes are actually, were operating at any given moment. You know, we were there for about three hours, so we did a tour kind of go around Terminal Island. It takes about three hours to loop around. A three-hour tour? A three-hour tour. I've heard really bad things about these three-hour <laughs> tours. I've learned uh, none of my employees know what Gilligan's Island even is, so yes, you know, right. I'm just not learning. Um, we, uh, and, and so, you, you know, you're not standing and observing every single crane the whole time, but as you pass by, basically three-fourths of the cranes were not operating at any given moment uh, at, or at all. While we were wow. the entire time we wow. were there, and you can see from a distance, you can see if a crane's working or not by whether it's down. If it's up in the air, like it's not clearly can't right. unload any containers, and they're just not—they're very, very much not operating. And what about the ships? You can see—you can see the ships just piled up in the Pacific. And and that's what—that's what—that's why I went there. So like, you can see it in our data that the port is like running very slowly. But it doesn't grab you viscerally the same way as when you go down and you see, like, okay, here's an empty berth with no cranes operating, and there's a ship, uh, 80 ships, actually, right now, as of this morning, waiting to unload. Uh, and so you just have a, a backlog and a traffic jam that uh, it really grabs you when you see it in person. You're like, man, we got to fix this. Ryan? Rob Long finds all this fascinating, so he's about to take over this conversation right. because he loves this stuff. But before he does, just... Tell us what Flexport is and why you know so much about this stuff. My little reading of it is you took what the most boring-sounding thing in the world, which is just stuff in containers, and actually made it into a really fascinating, very cool business. But just tell what, what is Flexport and why do you know this stuff? Uh, yeah, so Flexport's a technology platform for global logistics. We make it easy to ship anything anywhere in the world. We ship... Uh, cargo on behalf of about 10,000 companies to 112 countries last year. So uh, ocean freight and air freight uh, kind of coordinate everything that has to happen and move a container from a factory anywhere in the world to a warehouse anywhere else in the world. 
and handle all the customs paperwork, all the dispatching of different modes of transport that are going to happen, truck, ocean. This is, this is not FedEx and UPS where I send a sweater to my daughter in college. This is big containers. Yeah, and the difference is moving large quantities of stuff. When, when your shipment is too big for a FedEx driver to lift it up, it, can't, when it won't fit in the truck or go down the conveyor belt. That, that becomes a freight shipment, and it's a whole different network, and it's not nearly as automated. or uh, it, it tends to happen across many different companies. There's no one company that can move it door-to-door the way FedEx can move a package all the way. Right, right. And that's, and that's, what, that's where our technology comes in. Okay. And so that's why we know so much. We see we're the third largest uh, shipping company in the United States by volume. Uh, and uh, and we have skin in the game because those are our containers that are stuck there. We're trying to get them delivered, and we're, our customers are pretty pissed off, uh, calling us nonstop. Their containers okay, are sitting and, out and there. Before I, before I toss it over to Rob, just one question for me. This is me driving from Palo Alto up to San Francisco. I think this was, on a, this was a couple of weeks ago. And it's nothing like L.A., the port of Long Beach, for sure. But you can see container ships backed up in the bay in a way that I don't recall in the last quarter century here. And then as you drive up there, and for, for folks who live here in Northern California, of course, as you, if, you, if you're thinking of China Basin and the, the beautiful stadium where the Giants play, just south of that, there's a lot, a lot of cranes. There's a, and the cranes were not moving. How can it be that we have all this vast infrastructure in place and nobody's operating it, when ships are backed up in the bay, you can see them with your own eyes. How can that be? Yeah, the, it is much worse in Long Beach. Right now, Oak, Oakland's operating reasonably well. Like, there's not too much backlog. I, I, there, there have been. There have been days. So I don't want to say what you're saying is wrong. I think there have been times when Oakland had 10 or 12 ships backed up. But as of right now, it's cleared out. The, um, but it is, it is striking, and, and it's, like, really bothersome when you see a ship sitting there waiting at anchor with all the merchandise for our customers on it and then an empty berth. It's like, just you think, just sail over there and unload it. Uh, the problem has become, I, and I don't know exactly how the terminal got in this situation, but they have too many containers stuck inside the terminal. And so they're not able to unload more ships very effectively. It's like there's literally no place to put the container. And if you can't unload the ship, well, you can't haul away the, ship, the containers that are, on the mm-hmm. terminal, so you get these catch twenty two, these sort of vicious cycles happening, and um, you know the, the short answer is we haven't invested in our infrastructure in this country. Like there is no port in the United States that's capable of handling a ship even two thirds the size of the Ever Given, that big ship that got stuck in the canal. That, that, that ship could not come to the United States of America at any of our ports. Long Beach is the largest port. The largest capacity ship that can dock there is about 16,000 TEUs. Uh, that's about 8,000 truckloads of freight. It, the, uh, the Ever Given is 23, 24, almost 24,000 TEUs. So it, it just couldn't come to America. Our ports are not deep enough. The cranes are not tall enough. Uh, and that's to say nothing about the lack of automation or all the other inefficiencies. Hey, Ryan, it's Rob Long um, uh, in Paris right now, and I, I don't care what time it is. This is like my junk. I am so deeply into container shipping. I once uh, got into a, a, a – not a screaming argument, but a really, really, really – a tough argument with a friend of mine who's a big tech investor, and I said, listen, 20th century was, was not brought to us by computers. It was brought to us by container shipping, and container shipping continues to bring us – 
the 21st century. Uh, I took a container ship. I took a, a, um, a hand, the hand. I was on the hands of Miami in 2008 from uh, Seattle to Shanghai. Um, everything was slow because the economy had collapsed. So the, the, the guys running the, controlling the ships from Hamburg was sort of waking up in the morning and typing into a computer, which sent a message to the master of the Hanjin Miami, say, basically saying, take your time. Uh, do not bur burn oil, as uh, burn fuel as efficiently as possible. There is nothing there for us to pick up. Um, and so it took three weeks. I mean, we took our time. It was crazy, right? Um, this is not the case now. It is quite the opposite that there's nothing for us to buy. There's tons of us for us to buy. There are empty shelves. And there are people with money in the bank, and that Christmas is coming, and everybody wants to buy stuff. And I read your tweet, Storm, and it, it, did, it, it didn't surprise me, but it did put into, into relief the thing that I noticed when I was on one of those ships, and I sat in Busan for the whole day. I got the bachelor gave me a folding chair, and I sat on the deck of the Panjim Miami with a cigar and a couple of beers, and I watched... In six hours, barely six hours, cranes removing every container in the ship, rearranging them, sending some along, adding and putting them back into the ship, right? Unpacking. Everybody's ever been on a long road trip knows sometimes you unpack and repack and unpack and repack. That's what a container ship does at every port, right? Um, so it should work. This, the, the, even at capacity, it should work. I mean, I, I get that we don't have a container port that could take the giant, you know, whatever that evergreen thing was. I get, I get that. But that's not the problem here, is it? Is it just the fact that our cranes are too small? Because when I read your tweet storm, I thought to myself, well, of course, there is always, for those of us who are right-wing crackpots, there are always a, is always a regulatory problem, a stupid regulatory problem, and I think you identified it. And am I right or am I wrong in saying that if we change this one idiotic regulatory uh, issue in on the certainly in California, I mean Long Beach, LA port that combined, that's a gigantic port. Um, we'd be okay. We'd be close to okay. Is that, is that right or wrong? And what do I have wrong? Um, uh, you know, the, so the, the regulatory thing that you're referring to is, is the zoning rule that's actually in the cities, right. uh, not in the port itself, but in the, in the cities of, actually I think it's throughout most of California, where you can't stack containers more than too high in a truck yard. Um, right. and, and so if you don't have a place to put the containers, they sort of back up at the port because there's no place to unload them throughout the city. And if you can't unload this container from the trailer, we call this chassis. These are the trailers right. that haul the containers around. Well, then the containers have to sit on the chassis, on the trailers, and you don't have any trailers to go pick up containers from the port. So there is a regulatory issue there for sure. Right. Um, I think those zoning laws are probably somewhat reasonable. I don't really want stacks of containers in my neighborhood. They're kind of ugly. But um, but if you're in California, people really don't want that because it's a sign of free enterprise. And these stacks of capitalism <laughs> right. staring you in the right, face. Right. Like, but they're empty. So to be fair, they're empty. It's like what you do with the empties is actually an issue. I mean, part of what happens in, in, in our normal balance of trade is they we get full containers from China and we send back empties or they're filled with animal feed or scrap metal or something that yeah. you know, we they're not filled with American. About sixty percent of the container pre pandemic, about sixty percent of the containers going back were empty, leaving the United States on, on the West Coast. Uh, it's now more like 80%. Our exports have declined and imports have gone up. Wow. 
So you, it's not a safety issue. I assume that you can't stack these things more than too high because if you put three or four, they'd collapse on them. Also, they wouldn't collapse, but you might get a big windstorm knock them over, or someone might do a job, bad job stacking them. They might not lock them together. There's there's some there there are some definitely some safety issues. I don't, like I said, I think it's a it's a decent. I think it's a good risk, a good bet to make on a temporary basis to relax the thing. Long term, like there's no reason to have containers sitting around. Like let's let's get them moving. They they should be right. moving. We have a real shortage of chassis. There are some regulatory issues for sure. Um, first of all, the ports themselves are owned by the government, so I don't think you can make a classical libertarian argument here that we should just like anybody who has some beachfront property should be able to open right. a port. Like it is right. geographically constrained. Where can you put these things? There's a natural monopoly there. Uh, certainly, there could be a role for more private sector involvement, the government has definitely underinvested in these ports. And, and it's a subject of sort of like U.S. federalism to an extent because they're owned by the local cities. Like the port of Long Beach owns this, is owned by the city of Long Beach. Same right. here in Oakland in, in the Bay Area. Like what are the odds that Oakland's government, government is going to make the port a priority? It's a national economic uh, priority, not a local one. That the, the Oakland has too many problems to be thinking about their ports. Ports don't vote. Yeah, right. well, the union members certainly do, and yeah. put a lot of pressure on these local politicians as well. So you definitely um, that that's so a the unions want to milk them, I assume, right? The unions are asking for two things right now. The, the long is the um, ILWU, International Longshoremen and Warehousing uh, Warehousemen Association uh, Union. Um, the ILWU's got two demands. Their, their contract's up for renegotiation next year, so I don't think any of this is going to get better. By the way, uh, they have two demands. They're not asking for more money. Um, I think they must acknowledge that they're pretty well paid with the average worker making $195,000 a year. Um, that's the average. That's the average. I, I'm pretty sure that statistic includes, like, uh, overtime, of which there's been quite a bit. But, right. um, but that's the take-home average. They're asking for um, no more automation in the ports and no more <laughs> robots, and uh, they don't want any um, key performance indicators. They don't want Can any just... KPIs on their work. Can, can I just go? We just I, I, I just want to give you the uh, people listening just a short, brief history. Uh, in the fifties, mid fifties, um, a guy named Malcolm McLean uh, was a shipping guy, a trucking guy, and he's sitting there wondering why it takes forever for his truck to empty into the. Uh, I think it was the Port of Savannah, because at that point there were stevedores, big old cargo nets. That's what a cargo net is. It's a net that you pack to a thing, and it loads. And someone had to load that ship. He said, "Well, what if we just took the, put everything you want, put it in a box." And then take the box off the ship or on the ship and put the box on a train or chassis or a truck chassis. What if we just did that? Um, and that was this incredible light bulb moment. And it was a huge problem for the Longshoremen unions and the Stevedores unions because that was automation. Um, and it was going to put them all out of work. And nobody at that point imagined, even factoring for inflation, that you'd have a, a longshoreman in America at a very busy port making close to $200,000 a year. But now they – What's the same story, right? Because eventually, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan. Eventually, on, on a, a, a ship, a ship itself has like six masters and twenty um, uh, uh, crew, which you don't need. You only need like it was the thing. You know, Tesla can make a driving well, you car. You can't say make, this. He has to have yeah. work with these guys. Well, but, so I, I, what, the, the ship is, you know, actually that's pretty efficient ratio. If you think about these ships are moving twenty thousand containers with twenty yeah, people, okay, like it's right. not the best place to apply automation in, in all of society. But uh, and actually, most of what they do is like maintenance, which you still right. need even in a self. You might right. even need more of that. Okay, that's fair. But I'm saying it's like well, there's still there's still an automation pressure on uh, the longshoremen. Um, 
Well, that's the progress of technology. Yeah. I mean, if you take the yeah. container, the container is, I agree with you, Rob, I think that there's no technology of the 20th century that lifted more people out of poverty worldwide than the shipping container. And that what it did for business, like you can ship anything, Crazy. you reduce yeah. the price of shipping by 95% or something. So it's incredible invention. But we haven't advanced it since the 1970s. The cranes are still like pretty much the same. In some cases, literally the same machine. It, they move one container at a time. It's incredibly slow. Uh, inside the containers, like looks like it used to look inside the ship. It's people are using rope to tie stuff down. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity to apply robotics here. And, and, and frankly, <laughs> it's not new tech. Like Rotterdam has been fully automated for over 20 years with self-driving right. trucks and everything. Is it more efficient because of it? Yes, it is. Uh, Rotterdam is. Uh, it's, and, and certainly you see it in the cost. So to unload a container at Rotterdam, they charge the customers $200 in, in the West Coast here at $600. Uh-huh. Well, one of the things I hope that they're not bringing over from China is uh, raw ground beef because at this point the uh, the dry ice would probably be melted. Yes, my meat is not in a container cargo somewhere. It's, it's in my fridge and it's frozen. And I'm going to have some this weekend. It's going to be great. You know why? Because it's butcher box. You never know what life is going to throw at you. I think we've learned that in the last year and a half or so. That's why it's always best to be prepared. Whether it's an emergency or an impromptu gathering of friends or just a long day that makes you dread a visit to going to the supermarket. Whenever you need a great tasting meal you can trust, Butcher Box is in your corner, delivering what you need right to your door. Each box they have sends to 9 to 11 pounds of meat of your choosing, with options like 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, wild-caught lobster tails, wild-caught Alaska salmon, or sugar-free bacon. Can't go wrong with any of this stuff. And I haven't, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of the things... I, I'm not one of those guys who makes a fetish out of bacon. I don't think bacon is a personality. But I love the Butcher Box bacon. It's just great. I had some, and I quickly thawed it out, put it on the grill. Really better than anything I picked up at the store, frankly. And it was there in my fridge waiting for me, which is great. Everything about it, really, is great and simple. Once you sign up, you choose your box and your delivery frequency. They offer five boxes you can choose from. There's four curated box options, as well as the popular custom box. So you get exactly what you and your family love. Butcher Box ships your orders frozen at the peak of freshness and packed in a 100% recyclable box. Shipping is always free. And at the end, you enjoy great-tasting, high-quality meat delivered right to your door. And right now, Butcher Box is offering our listeners, which would be you, ground beef for life. For life. You heard me correctly. Every order for the life of your membership, you get two pounds of ground beef. You'll never have to shop for it again. But it's a limited-time offer, and now's your chance to get on it. Free beef for life. Oh, you can get it if you sign up at butcherbox.com slash ricochet to get that two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. That's butcherbox.com slash ricochet to claim that deal. That's butcherbox.com slash ricochet. And we thank Butcherbox for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. I, I don't want to completely ignore Rob's automation point of view, but I but I, you said one thing that, that you know bugs us all, that the stuff coming over here from China, it's the containers are full, and what we're sending back is scraps and stuff and junk and whatever, or empty containers. But, but So we know what the effect is here, empty shelves. What's the effect of the backup in China? Has this stalled their economy because they can't get their goods out, they can't sell stuff because there's no way to get it to market? Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think it's worth reflecting here that, like, what we really are seeing is demand-driven, that there, there's more volume than ever coming into the ports, that there is actually more cargo hitting the port, and it's backed up, and it's created these delays, and it has started to slow the ports down, and it has congested the ships, which has reduced the supply of shipping. 
but overall number of containers moving over on a, since before the pandemic are up about 20%. It's just for the last month or so that things have really started to grind and slow down. And what has me so worried is if you have a system where the input's the same, where like, you know, for the last six months, the volumes have been about steady of uh, number of containers coming out of China. But if the volume is the same and the delay is getting longer and longer, that's a very worrisome sign in a complex system that you might have mm -hmm. some kind of negative feedback loop that's going to that's going to keep uh, extending. So I'm I'm more worried about the future here than I am like currently volumes are pretty high. Business consumers are buying more stuff than ever, and it does come back to the pandemic of people locked in their houses, not being able to go travel, spend money at restaurants, bars, services. They they're buying stuff instead. Right. Um, so I think overall that's been very good for China. Like they're they're exporting more stuff than ever. The U.S. business is buying more things from China than ever. Uh, now, if it stays like this and there's 60 days, it's taking like 70, 60 to 90 days to get cargo delivered from China to a warehouse in the U.S. It's not, you can't run a responsive supply chain like that. So right. if these if these delays persist, it's going to be very bad for China. They, I do think the Chinese government is actually aligned here. They need to help get this fixed in any way that they can. Right. I tried to get, I've been trying to get a, a stove and I've been for an, an awful long time. The last time I checked, they said, well, if you want this one that you got, that's the one. Uh, we're looking at March. Which is un-American. It never used to be that way. It used to be we got we got a whole bunch of warehouses. It's going to be there. It's going to be there on Thursday. But here's my question: I mean, a lot of people say, "Look, it's not, those aren't the only ports in the country. Why not just drive them through Panamax, take them to you know to Texas somewhere to offload them into you know the port of Newark?" But you, as a logistics guy, it's got to be difficult to do that because you then have to rearrange, don't you, what happens when it gets to the other side of the country. You've got everything plotted so it lands here with this barcode or this Q code or this number and it goes to this place and you got that figured out. How reflexive and, and adaptive are you and other people in your industry to be able to say, okay, now it's coming in for here. we got to get it over here. we got to move the trucks. we got to get it on that train. That seems like the clusterfuck. Uh, yeah, to say the least, and and like a lot of the the, the ships have sold sp space. They've sold the, the contract says the cargo's got to be delivered in Long Beach. So if they bring it somewhere else, they're they're going to have to truck it or train it back to Long Beach uh, by the contract. So it, now if the ship hasn't left yet, so that's what you're going to start seeing is that yeah. new sailings are starting to redirect and head to Oakland. So they don't have any contract Oakland and other ports that are running a little bit smoother. Uh, so they don't have that contract issue. At the end of the day. If you re-diverted all the container ships that are in Long Beach, they would just create traffic jams everywhere else. There aren't enough, you know, they're, they're right. the biggest port by far, so no one else has the capacity. How come, wasn't the port of Houston five, six years ago, I seem to remember that the, somebody, Texas, I don't know who owns the port of Houston, but they were pouring a ton of money in the port of Houston, and the idea was that they were going to attract a lot of traffic from California. They were competing, they were intending to compete. With, with the port in Los Angeles. Is, did that not happen? Um, it's not. It's just so far out of the way, and you pay the Panama Canal fees and now all the, the extra delay of going around that you don't really see much happen. The, um, there are some. Well, I know uh, some of the big bags retailers in that area do come in through, mm -hmm. through there. Um, you're also going to see it. That those investments probably going to pay off next summer if, if the West Coast goes on strike. If there's union negotiations right. don't go well, then everything's going to flow through. <laughs> through so. Okay, so uh, I got two questions. What, what, one practical question again, and then the other is uh, more uh, political. Practical, sort of practical question. Um, uh, containers are simply packets, and inside the packet is stuff. And when we send packets of data, that's what we're doing right now on Zoom, it goes a bunch of different ways and it's collected at the end. Um, my picture and my audio and my email and my texts and your text and email, all goes crazy over the network. 
Is part of the problem, accepting the fact that you didn't take my bait, which I really feel disappointed in, this is all because we're, you know, we live in a two-regulated two society. Okay, you know what you're talking about. Um, isn't part of the problem that we have, like, we, we do not have any redundancy or any, or what would, the, what would NASA and Taleb say, anti-fragility to the system, that this, we have this gigantic trading partner in China sending us uh, Christmas 2021, and it's got to go either Long Beach, L.A., Seattle or Oakland, or that's it. And doesn't it seem like, and, and the West Coast, I th- and the East Coast is even worse. Doesn't it seem we need to, doesn't it seem like there is an agile software solution in the, along the lines of what we did with sending electronic mail that would be perfect for this? Uh, funny you should say that. That's a, that's a lot of what Flexport's building is, is to start running. Well, hurry up running containers on schedules so that instead of it, like, because actually put yourself in the eyes of the customer. Say you're like one of these new direct-to-consumer brands, a uh, customer of ours just went public called Allbirds. They make shoes. Right. And if you're Allbirds, you shouldn't care, like, what yeah. port your shoes go through or which boat it's on or anything. You just need the shoes in a certain place at a certain time. And, they're you know, you know where they're made. And you just, as long as it gets there, you're fine. Um, and... This is what we're building towards is that you can actually just like just tell us where you need the stuff and we'll get it there. We'll handle all the routing. We'll decide which boat it goes on. Is it a packet? Do we split it across six different boats? And then it, as long as it converges at the end, it gets there. So that's some of it. Um, I think more to your point around anti-fragility, absolutely. Like all of the companies that are public in the United States have ad- seemingly all have adopted this mindset of maximizing return on invested capital, return on equity, return on assets, whatever you want to call it. But And the way that they try to maximize that, that ratio of profit over equity, right. profit over assets, unfortunately, instead of aiming to increase profits, too often they try to decrease the denominator, decrease the amount of assets in the company. They're just trying to optimize this ratio. And, and that's what Wall Street rewards. If you don't do that, they're going to fire you and put someone else in there. It's like that's the game that you play. Which Wait a minute. Ryan, you're, you're this hotshot entrepreneur. You're starting to sound almost like a socialist. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, attacking- I, I, I absolutely think you should aim for higher returns. Don't for more profit. But it's okay right. to have some assets in your company. Like have a, have a safety cushion. Have some inventory if you're a brand. Have some right. raw materials on, on hand to make more of your product in case order surge. Or if you're a shipping company, have some extra capacity. Have extra trailers. Right. Like as a, con- as a country right now, we don't have enough trailers. Okay, why? here's a thought. If I'm just – this is all to the good, and here's why. It's because we really need new supply chains. China is our adversary. Let's face it. We buy a lot of stuff from them, but they do not wish us well. And so this is a moment when companies across this country – for strategic reasons, but now for purely economic reasons. Wait a minute, this thing is not working. Let's think about Malaysia. Let's think about Mexico. Let's think about bringing some supply, some manufacturing home. So this is all to the good, to which Ryan says. Well, you're certainly going to see prices and market forces respond to prices. And so if it becomes way too expensive to ship from somewhere, they're going to find new places yeah. to ship from. And and so, yeah, to that extent, you've definitely created a new price mechanism that's made made this much more expensive. Uh, my my personal view is cheap stuff is good for Americans, and raising prices is a risky thing to do. 
Uh, now, if it's just market forces taking place, and that's the natural occurrence of things, but I do, I, I kind of agree with Rob. I, I think there's a lot of regulatory stuff. I don't think this is just pure free market at play. I think that if the government is going to run these ports uh, or is going to own the ports, then they have to do a good job with them. And if they don't, you're going to, you know, like, I don't, I don't know that, like, crappy infrastructure can ever be good for the economy, regardless of who your right. trading partners no, are. You, you, well, you right. you, well, I'll go with you. The government should own, own the ports because there's sort of a national security issues. We sort of see. I get that. My idea but why, is why should it be the city of Oakland? That's well, the wrong unit, isn't it? I don't know. Okay, the, sorry. Sorry, you know, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. It's go on ahead. Oakland. You know, Oakland has that marshland, and they did something okay. with it. Um, it's just a develop, real estate development. Um, my idea of hell, or the thing that will keep me up at night, is the, is the um, Secretary of Transportation, um, the current Secretary of Transportation, and the current President of the United States, sitting together uh, one afternoon to try to come up with a way to solve this problem. Um, my idea of hell, uh, my secondary hell, not quite as bad, but pretty bad would be even a president that I like and a secretary of transportation that I like doing it. I'm just not convinced that the government is the, is, is, is the way to think um, with an entrepreneurial, smart, kind of skin in the game kind of attitude. So my question is, why aren't there, why are, why aren't there more riots? This is an important issue. Why, why aren't the, the uh, these gigantic business leaders, these sort of corporate titans who rely entirely upon these things, why aren't they coming up with a plan that I can get behind that's practical in real life that I don't have to say, well, in addition to all the other things i got to vote for over the Biden plan, I've also got to vote for a lot of climate change nonsense that I don't like. Why, why can't we just have – I guess what I'm saying is, you know, tonight, do it. Just write it down, and, like, I'll, I'm behind it. I'm just telling – I mean, that's what I think as a citizen I want. I want people who have skin in this game, who know about this issue, who oh, – now we, now we all know it's a problem. Tell me how to solve it. Absolutely. Uh why aren't there more people like me? I don't know, man. I'm kind of a freak. I feel like sometimes, like I decided to send a taco truck to the port of Long Beach, is how this all started, and try to <laughs> interview the union workers to tell to get their side of the story. And I don't think, you know, I don't think our education system has created a lot of people like me who think that's a good idea. Everyone at Flexport thought I was joking. I was like, no, I'm actually serious. Send a taco truck. And yeah. uh, I don't know, just a bit of an idiosyncratic thinker. Um, where are the Titans of Industry? I don't know. I've talked to a bunch of them. They're definitely pissed off. I think they they are looking for sort of leaders leadership and I, I, i'm very tempted to play that role and sort of come and say okay here's a plan it's very capital intensive like you want to run a port buy an ocean carrier buy all the chassis there's a bunch of stuff that you could do with technology to make these things run better but you have to control and own the asset and again america american business is afraid to own assets like wall street has trained us like assets are bad we only want to make profit with no assets so it's all software i flexport has really struggled over the years People think we're like this darling technology company that everybody wants to invest in, but we've really struggled to raise money because our business is like a real business. We're not this like pure software company that you can use your imagination and dream that everything's going to go to the moon automatically with no work. And uh, I think our capitalists are a little bit lazy in this country. They don't want to own any assets. They don't want to do any work. They don't want to hire any people. You're like, well, you know, you're not going to solve a lot of real world problems if you have that attitude. Brian, right. case study. I don't know the answer to this question, but something tells me you will. The people who run Walmart, they're the biggest retailer in America. They're really smart. They will be all over their supply chain. Why aren't we hearing from them? 
Are they afraid of achieving a public profile and saying this, this, and this should be done because they're concerned about getting caught up in the union negotiations that are coming up? Is it, is it just politically poison for a Walmart to say the government is causing some problem here and we could, we, we'd like, but they have shareholders. It's a giant operation. Everybody in America shops there. Everybody has a more or less some feeling of goodwill toward Walmart. Why, are, why isn't Walmart taking some sort of position on all this? I, I couldn't for example, to, I couldn't speak to Walmart in particular. I, I, I don't know what, what I haven't spent much time with them. But I, you know, actually, you could ask a different question of Walmart: is Hey, why didn't they put a wall up and make the back uh, quarter of every store a fulfillment center? Ten years ago, they would have had two-hour delivery, and Amazon net wouldn't exist. Right. There's there's sort of like <laughs> lack of will in some of these companies to do the obvious right. thing. Well, you're right. For the same reason that newspapers didn't get ahead of the internet when it started happening and made crazy lists. Right. 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 So I, 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 I just think like you know one thing the pandemic has exposed is like a lot of these institutions, and I'm not commenting on Walmart or any particular company, but a lot of our institutions are pretty hollow. And yes. They're not they're not led by like dynamic people who have some job security and can take risks and go do things. They they're optimizing for like short-term metrics and you can make a business look great stripping out all the assets over a period of a couple of quarters or even a couple or even a decade but like when a hundred year storm hits your business is going to either have to get bailed out or it's going to miss an opportunity of a lifetime and nobody's playing those kind of long games in corporate america they're they're tending to optimize for what the you know right. what the street right and we think they're going to be here forever walmart will be eternal walmart will be around in 50 60 years when you look at the you know the blade runner 2001 space odyssey effect all the brand names they put in the sci-fi movies end up vanishing by the time we get around to you know the actual present ryan last question here um you, you said we don't have enough trailers which is something i don't think about and people say we don't have enough trucks and we don't have enough drivers i mean our family business involves a lot of things, but one of it is fueling the trains, the car, the, you know, the, the trains that come roaring through the North Dakota. They've got to get diesel somewhere. So we got a guy who gets up at 3 o'clock in the morning and fuels up the trains. But we're having trouble getting those guys for a variety of reasons. It's hard to get to them. You've got to pay them a lot of money. So this train proceeding forward actually depends on our company, you know, the guy who owns it, getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and doing it instead of an employee. So you have all of these parts trailers, the drivers, the tra- all of that. How, last question is, how do you, running Flex Support, how far out are you presuming that things aren't going to get better? Is that just baked into your analysis now that we're not going to get more trailers, we're not going to get more drivers, we're not going to get more trucks, you know, hope so in the future, but how far out are you looking at this and saying it's going to be this way? It's... Um, I'm, like, much more comfortable with uncertainty than normal people, and I... So I, I'm like, I don't really know, and I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I, I, I can get there's – there's a couple of factors that are almost unknowable that are going to be real – yeah, real factors here. One, the first is this union negotiation. What happens? Do they go on strike or not? If they go on strike, you're going to see way more backlogs and way more chaos. And so the that, timing of that is um, – July 1st, the contract is up that they're under right. right now. So uh, I'm told they're going to start ne- negotiating that around May. Um, and, and typically these contracts – renegotiation periods have come with work slowdowns and stoppages and other things like short of a strike. Uh, and then, and, and the strike did happen the last, when this yeah. contract was negotiated in 2015, they, they also went on strike back then for three months. Um, so, so that's a huge thing next year. The other one, 
which is going to get you guys really riled up on this show, uh, is January 1st of 2023, the International Maritime Organization, that's a division of the United Nations, uh, that is the oversight body for global ocean freight shipping. Right. They passed a rule uh, November of last year, right after Trump uh, lost the election, they passed a rule that says that all ships in the world, all container ships in the world must reduce their emissions by 13%, their carbon emissions by 13% on January 1st of 2023. Uh, that's around the corner. That's tomorrow yeah. the shipping times. There's um, no way it's going to happen, right? The rule is going to happen. There is no possible way under the laws yeah. of physics to reduce the emission of an internal combustion diesel engine by 13%. That, that we don't have technology to do that other than what Rob was talking about, going very slow. Uh, <laughs> um, now, if It's a nice way to travel, by the way. If you go much slower, and I'm told you have to go 30% slower to achieve a 13% reduction in carbon, well, you, you either need that many more ships to move the same amount of cargo, or you just move less cargo. And because that's the nature of a network. If you slow it down, that's that you, you reduce its, it's capacity. Um, and so if you reduce global shipping by 30%, you are going to trigger the worst economic collapse. I mean, it's just an unbelievable <laughs> rule. And all adherents to the United Nations, all member states of the United Nations are going to uh, have committed as of right now to, to enforce this. So no container ship will be able to dock at any member state of the United Nations on January 1st, 2023, unless it can show that it has reduced its emissions from uh, current levels by 13%. So we're we're so we're gonna it's a good game of chicken then right because it'll be the, the standoff between the world's biggest seller which is China and the world's biggest buyer which is us. I mean, to see who's gonna blink first, right, on this rule. I'm not I mean, sure China, who really wants this rule. It sounds good, but it's like if you don't actually have technology to implement it, it doesn't help. You know, it's sort of yeah. like you you roll out renewables before there there's enough of them or before the technology gives you the baseload that you need, you end up. You end up just increasing energy prices and making everybody poorer without actually reducing emissions. Oh, which is what actually they kind of sort of want. They want energy to be expensive so it's not consumed. And they don't want consumption to decrease because you don't need that stuff that's on the, coming over from China anyway. Do you really need of, that? I, Do you need 32 varieties of deodorant? No. It, 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 does, it does feel like that part of it. Um, now, it, it will increase the price of shipping, and the shipping companies are going to make a ton of money. So there's a lot of forces that want this to happen. Uh but with, that, with those two giant variables, like to me, it's unimaginable. Oh, the other one that is unimaginable that this law will actually go through, we, ha we have this thing called AB5 in California that makes it, it was for Uber drivers and DoorDash drivers yes. and stuff that have to become right. employees instead of contractors. Well, the way that law was written, it applies to truck drivers too. And most of the truck drivers that do port trucks in the United States are owner operators. These are yeah. entrepreneurs who own their own truck. And that's now going to be illegal. They, they've, got it, they've got it postponed for the moment. You are uh, I don't know the exact me. status of that. But under the law, they didn't carve out truck drivers. And most of the truck drivers, I don't know if it's the majority, but certainly a huge percent. Yeah. Most of the ones we work with are owner-operators. They own their own truck. And that's, you know, and now they have to sell their truck and get a job as an employee of a truck driving company. Do they not understand the flexibility that is provided by owner-operator rigs going around and setting their own schedule? I mean, I, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's somehow California with Uber, we don't, we, it's the same argument, but it doesn't fall. You know, 80% of Uber drivers don't want to be employees. They like being entrepreneurs that work on their own time, right. but that didn't matter. So, uh, but with Uber drivers, it's like, okay, fine. Like, we won't have this beautiful new magic taxi service that we didn't have 10 years ago. But with truck drivers, like, we won't have trucking. Like, that's something we've always had. Right.
Oh, Grant. Listen, we could go on forever about this. This is fascinating. This is this this is the you know the, the arterial system of the country. This is the heart that pumps the economy. This is great stuff, and I've learned so much, especially what's coming up in 2023. That's going to be fun to watch, especially the enforcement mechanism. Can I see your papers to prove that you you know you're, you're oh yes here's my here here it is signed and notarized. You know, let me prove I, to you I've been going as slow as possible to cross the ocean. Right, right, great, great, right. great work. Right, and you and it does not it does not reduce net emissions like on a per shipment basis. You just need more boats, so you end up with the same amount of carbon. Right, it's, right, it's, right. Or sales. I mean, the the idea of the progressive vision of the future, with all of its technocratic possibilities, is ship is giant ships with sails again. It really bothers me. I was hoping we would get out of this without describing either equity or climate change, but by God, we got it. We got one of those in there because no subject can possibly not touch these things. Ryan, we got to let you go because we've taken a lot of your time, but we would like to have you back at some point with good news, perhaps in a year and some Take stuff. A second. Yes, Brian. Reach over your shoulder, pull down that book, take a second, and sell your book. Yeah. So I wrote, yeah. I wrote this book. Yeah. This is uh, this is I, I I have a daughter. She's about uh, just turned uh, one, and I've been reading her a lot of children's books. And I saw that the the bar was not very high for these kids' books. They're, they're really <laughs> full of nonsense. So I thought I'd write a book to educate kids about global shipping, how where all the stuff comes from. I thought yes. that's, uh And uh, it's it's the story of that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. And it's about um, – it's also a, th- a story of naive optimism, the idea that people were making fun of this guy with the digger, with the excavator for trying to dig it out. And I was – I think that's inappropriate. I think when you have a machine, even if it's in- insuitable for the job, you at least got to try to do the right thing. Uh, and the guy, and so I, I kind of turned the book yeah. around and made that guy into a hero. Hey, good job good. trying to dig him out. And the title also, is – You know what? It could have worked. It could have worked. That thing could – it could have worked. It's a it's a Pixar movie waiting to happen, so I yeah. think you should probably. So yeah, hold up the book. So what's Ryan, the you're a lousy pitchman. The title of the book is. is. Oh, it's, well, it's called The Big Ship and the Little Digger. The right. Big Ship and the Little Digger, and those of us who can see your bookshelf see that you put you keep the Big Ship and the Little Digger right next to Fernand Braudel, A History of Civilizations. <laughs> I presume you're also reading that to your one-year-old. Uh, she, no, she hasn't got to that topic yet, but my, the bookshelf is a great way to do propaganda and let exactly. people know what's important to you. So. Exactly right. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes. Like it sounds, I, finally, I've met somebody. You not only are into container shipping, but you've written a children's book about it. It is the only thing I'm truly obsessed by. Uh, um, so, um, I don't know. Next time you go on a tour of a harbor, give me a shout. All right, Rob, drop me a note when you're in San Francisco. I'll take you I will. I will. Ryan Peterson, Flexport. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, today. guys. Have a great day. Take care, Ryan. Thank you. Say hi to your brother. Will do. You just hate to think of those container cargoes, containers going to China empty. Why can't we fill up? You know, what do we have here in America we could fill them with? Well, I know what we got. We got agricultural products. And being from North Dakota, I can tell you one thing we got lots of, and that's beets. What are beets good for you? When you when you think beets, you don't necessarily think, oh, there's something that'll pet me up. But you know, you know what? You get endurance, lack of it. You get fatigue, lots of it, and you think, ah, coffee, caffeine, energy drink. No, no, no. How about this? Here's a new way to start your day. Super beets, heart juice from Human N. They're a tasty treat that gives you the energy you need without the trade-offs to your long-term health. No more afternoon coffees and the attendant crash energy drinks that leave you wiped out at the end of it. Candy for those quick pick-me-ups that never last. No. Add two delicious plant-based Super Beet Heart Chews to your morning routine and promote heart-healthy energy for your day without that caffeine crash. Super Beet's Health Chews have a unique clinically researched grape seed extract that promotes heart-healthy energy and normal blood pressure as part of a healthy lifestyle. They give you the lift you want. 
to get through the day, but they'll also provide that extra oomph that you've been missing. And for those of you who take pride in your good habits, keep in mind that the grapeseed extract used in Super Beats Heart Chews have been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. Hmm. So do more for your heart and treat yourself with Super Beats Heart Chews. Join over 1 million customers. Get free shipping and returns, a 90-day money-back guarantee. And right now, right now, this very moment, you can get a free 30-day supply. Free 30-day supply with your first purchase at superbeats.com slash ricochet. That's superbeats.com slash ricochet. And we thank Human N and the Superbeats for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now, Rob, if I could, I would like to revisit a previous point yes. and uh, beat it into the ground. Uh, when we talk about gas prices, and you say, yeah, we've had $4 gasoline before, but let's look at the reasons why we did. We had a, you know, a refinery would crash. California would change over its blends. There'd be some cluster bleep in the Middle East. There'd be a pipeline accident. It would go up and down and up and down. I mean, yes, we have that volatility. It's bad. It's bad for everything because yeah, yeah, the price yeah, of yeah. gasoline adds the cost to everything. But what people seem to perceive here, and Joe Biden even didn't, you know, wow, have you ever seen gas this high before? as he said the other day, is that it's a combination of things that people seem to be willfully imposed, not just the market working here, but the de- but the shutting down of the American energy industry is what people perceive. Regulatory burdens being placed, leases being yanked, pipelines being canceled. Europe, you can have yours, but you can't have one here. And I know the gas and the oil are separate things, but in the people's mind, there's this constellation of government efforts that seek to reduce energy usage. And it, why would we think that that's some secret plan? Because that's what they want. That's everything yeah. that they've been saying that they want us to do. I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's true. I, I, all I mean is that the, the pr- price of gas itself, it does go up and down. So it may not be it, – it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unreliable indicator of 1970s-style institutional inflation. That's all I meant is that it, that's not the – that can go up. That can also go down. But, but, but the, the fundamental problems of the economy – and, and and inflation, we may be looking at an inflationary period, and that would be really bad. Price of oil will go up. But in, in, in a good economy, the price of oil, the price of gas can go up and then go down. So I'm just, just talking about it. it as an indicator of one thing is, is what I, I would want to use. You know? Right. But, but I, I, would, I, I, would ban, I would ban the administration with this. I would use it oh, yeah. as a cudgel. I mean, when you have the guy in Belarus telling Europe, you know what? I got my foot on the throat of your gas supply. Maybe I'll turn it off if you don't like what yeah, I'm doing with the right. migrant situation. We ought to be able to turn around to them and say, here's a bag of sand and here's a hammer because we have liquefied natural <laughs> gas <laughs> and pressurized <laughs> containers streaming yes. out of Brownsville, Texas, yes. ports all the time. But the administration doesn't want to do that. Correct. No, that is absolutely that is absolutely correct. And like, like a lot of things, they have managed to take success – and throw it away. It's not you, tra- tra- traditionally what what often ha- not traditionally often happens when you get a very liberal administration like Obama or even Clinton. Um, they kind of look the other way at some Republican or conservative uh, initiatives and regulations because they knew they were actually actually worked. So they kind of turned away from them. I mean. Uh, Obama, Obama, for one Obama stayed out of the way of fracking because he needed he really it to did. lift the yeah. economy. He stayed and right it, out of the way. Right, and it totally worked. And so the best thing for them to have done is to sort of uh, – they could talk all they want, but look away and busy yourself with something else. You know, fam, paid family leave for 16 years uh, and, but, and give us fracking, right? But they, they, they don't do that because, unfortunately, they're at the end, the bitter end of this, there are, there's only the true believers left. 
more and more on the left are starting to say, look, if we're serious about climate change, we've got to be serious about nuclear, right. which leads us to La France, yeah. vive le nuclear, yes. right? That's true. That's true. Rob, yes. you're there yes. now. Give yes. us a little phrase. Give us a, give us a thumbnail sketch that sums up the entire country and its mood from the view of one guy who Pro got here. Uh, who got here at eight, 8 in the morning. I can tell you this. It's not any more efficient than, um, than the United States in terms of the pandemic. Although, uh, but, they, you know, you're hustled in. you got to show your, your uh, vaccine card to get in. Once you're here, everyone does exactly what they're doing in New York. They're like, I have a mask in my hand. Do I wear it? You want me to wear it inside? And they kind of roll their eyes and say, Come to, uh, come vous voulez, monsieur, as you wish. And they kind of look sad, and I hold it. And then we do the polite thing, like, well, if I did, if I should I start putting it on? And then I did that this morning, and then the lady was like, she sighed, like this loud <laughs> sigh. She said, okay, all right, God damn it, I can put mine on too. And then I would say, oh, I'll but then you can't take it off. So it's like, it's, it's super awkward, um, but it's reassuring that they are uh, being French about everything, which is like ultimately very practical. And I think that's... Um, that's what you want. And then, and didn't Macron, didn't, uh, uh, what was it, two, in, well, sometime in the last two weeks, they announced new nuclear reactors. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. he's not, he's they're not building, backing down on that. Yeah, he's like. The, the Germans French. next door are shutting down their reactors as fast as they can. Right. And the French said, no, no. That, there is something strange about the French. When they're serious, they're really serious. The French and military, it's, it's don't mess practical. with them. No, when no, it comes down to uh, we, we, need, we need a reliable source of energy, don't talk to me about the environment. Don't talk to me about goodwill toward the so. No, we're going to build new nuclear reactors. The French have yeah. also, I believe, have been asked to join the, uh, the space effort, the space uh, commission, the federation that we're putting together. And uh, that's interesting because we forget that French has, the France has their own rocket program, the Ariane. They, they, they've been going their own way on that for a while, too. So, yeah, bring them in. Which makes you think that all the guys are getting together because there's something out there that they want to make sure that, you know, that we're all on the same page about this. So, Rob, could I, here's, here's a big question about France. My across-the-street neighbor, the late and great René Girard. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. René was a... Uh, he was a Frenchman to his dying day, although he lived in this country from the 1950s on. But he used to argue that France ended when de Gaulle left the presidency in 1968. <laughs> that is a conservative. Right, yes, exactly. But <laughs> as long, right up, to the, right up to the last moment of de Gaulle's presidency, France as an independent entity and French civilization as a force in the world remained plausible. And the moment de Gaulle disappeared, France is just another unit of Europe. Hmm. Does that feel right to you? I, I, I don't think it is. I think that I, 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 I don't. I understand what he's saying. Although, mm -hmm. uh, to say 68 and de Gaulle, I, I, I think, um, you know, France made a couple of deals with it, with a couple of bad deals, right? One is made a de bad deal in the 19th century in, uh, with the Prussians, with the idea of, like, we're going to get big. And the, 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 when they were paid, they were repaid by uh, two uh, subsequent invasions in the early 20th century. And then they made sort of a larger deal, which they didn't really like, with NATO, and they pulled out of NATO. That was de Gaulle, by the way. Right. And then they realized, well, you know, they have uh, these, I mean, um, they weren't colony. Algeria was not a colony. It was a departmental state. It's like Hawaii. Uh, and when Algerian independence happened, it was really convulsive here. You could still people still get angry. You could still see old people at dinner getting angry about it. 
Mm. Uh, and and De Gaulle himself was was betrayed the cause. I mean, this is going to. Yes. I know we want to wrap it up. I think we're So uh, France itself has been trying to figure itself out for a long time. Um, even the country as a as a unified language is not that old. We, we tend to think of like France as like it's always been that shape, and that language really hasn't been. Um, I think that, and then the, the most recent uh, deal the French made was to uh, uh, hook up with um, a pacifist, um, cowed Germany, occupied Germany still, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, and create a European Union, and hoodwink the English, the British to go along with it for a little bit uh, until the until they until they washed up, um, and they're always trying to find a way to sort of punch above their weight, right? Um, and I and and whether they. Uh, whether they succeed or they don't, I, I don't think it's fundamentally different now than it was in '68 or '62 or '55. Even I just, I just don't think it's that. I don't think you can point to something and say things are now. Now it's on the decline. I think France has been in, in what what it, that would be considered decline for 200 years since Napoleon. So, yeah. what a, last question. Frenchman, you're at dinner, you're smoking your gradoise, you're uh, having a lovely yeah. wine, your coco vin, etc. And you say to a Frenchman, do you feel French or do you feel European? Oh, Has no. their identity inside their minds changed? What do you think the answer to that might be, Peter? Based on the number of French people that I've known... I, I, I'm well, pretty, that's an interesting. Clear where I, yeah. I got into some pretty heated arguments right here in Northern California with some English people. This is in the lead into Brexit. Younger English people, and they said, "No, no, no, I feel European." And the Germans will always tell you. Younger yes. Germans will yes. always tell you they're European, not German. Well, for understandable reasons, you'd rather right. not be associated with that history. But French, I think. French still feel French, which is a remarkable thing if it's true. But I just plain don't know. Uh, I think I, I think that the, you know the French have an enormous capacity for for delusional thinking. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So my guess is that they will fee, they will say and it will be a lie that they feel European, and then they will go and list all the things about them how they feel that are purely French. Right. The the EU was simply a vessel for wh which they believed they were going to be able to sort of control right. as the sort of marionette of the big lunking now completely defang Germany, which they've always wanted. They've always thought the Germans are, you know, big and stupid and loud, but strong. Um, I remember talking, and, and, and that's, they've always been very clear-eyed about their, their neighbors. I once, <laughs> as a joke, after dinner with a little too much wine, said to my friend Hubert, I said, Hubert, let me ask you something. You know, if the English and the French had another war, you know, they had wars for centuries. Like, if they've only not been having war for a few centuries. Um, who would win? And he says, huh. And I said, you know, because obviously I think French, French technology, French, French military technology is very, very good, very mm. sophisticated. Um, you know, like, who would win? And then he sort of looked and, you know, swirled his arm and yak and looked and, you know, and then very seriously said to me, well, you know, uh, the English, uh, they are very brave. And that, I thought it was exactly right. They are. And you're not. It's like, you know, ultimately... Yeah, I get it. I get it. I understand how this is going to shake out. So, um, uh, I, you know, look, I think that the future, the future of, I, I think the Americans would do better to pay attention to French strategy and French policy because they 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 tend to be right. They were right about Iraq. We always forget mm -hmm. Freedom Prize. And they were jaw the jerks. They said 
they were absolutely right. They said he doesn't have them. They're not. He's not. They're not dangerous. They said, "Here's our evidence. Our evidence says he has this, this, and this. He's not dangerous." And it turned out they were right. We were wrong. Um, or France wanted to protect the oil contracts that it had with Iraqi companies. Yes, the French. I, I, mean, I, I tend to think a lot of the high-mindedness is is a is a thing for national self-interest, which is of course fine. All nations behave, behave that way. France has been getting along with this. We are the soul. We are the the you know the the philosophical spirit guiding light of the world for an awful long time. But you're like, yeah, okay, all right. Um, but you're right about you know as Peter said, whether or not they're French or European. A German walks up and punches a Frenchman in the nose. The Frenchman's reaction is not going to be, "But you are my European brother." It's going to be, "The boss de la merde." You instantly reduce it down to that. But again, I agree with Rob. I'd, I'd rather have France as our partner going forward um, than some country that's getting wet and wobbly. I mean, if you mentioned as Peter did, the Britain young Britons feel that yes. they're European more than they are British because they've been inculcated by forty years of liberal of leftism over there to believe that national identity is a horrible thing that leads to wars, and that the only thing we can do is subsume all of our peculiar and yet, in the end, inessential cultural differences into a great big pot of a European identity, and all will flow from that. But, of course, that cracks the minute that there's any pressure and people revert to tribe. Uh, hey, uh, Rob, I mentioned before about why we think the French all wear striped shirts and berets and the rest of it. Right, right, right. Your assignment for this week, perhaps, is to ask all of your French interlocutors uh, <laughs> what they believe is the cliched American garb and why that's so. Because oh, from what I understand see. about what we believe about, you know, that they all, the, the striped shirt, the beret, and the rest of it, it comes from something that's quite surprising. It comes from lower class terms. It comes from, you said the Bretons, it comes from the dock, it comes from criminal gangs. It comes from the Apache dance. And that's a whole thing really? maybe wow. we, can, we can get into at Ricochet 4.0 where we have all kinds of comments. And, yeah, maybe we'll talk about it there. There's so much to talk about. And, friends, if you want to discuss these issues, Ricochet.com joining it is how you get to do so. Because you've got to pay money to comment. That's what keeps yeah. us sane. It's not a lot, but you got to. And it makes it all worthwhile. What else makes your life worthwhile? Well, going to donors, trust to Butcher Box and Human, and support them for supporting us. And, of course, did I mention you should join Ricochet today? I did. Did I mention that you should go to Apple Music, Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you call it now, and give us five stars? I didn't, but I just did. So thank you both. It's been great to have Rob back in the podcast. Um, we'll, be, we'll all be together next week, I guess, for another round of this for number 571. And until then, I'm James Lalex, Minneapolis, Peter Robinson of California, Rob Long of Paris. And we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week. Next week, boys. Next week, fellas.
Ricochet. Join the conversation. All right, I'm going to see if I can get a... I'm, I'm going to go to the Apple Store and see if I can get one of these. 